Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves for Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch. I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. We know that, in fact, the capitalist class has made massive, massive profits through the pandemic itself. The pandemic is not, in many ways, the pandemic is not against the interests of a major elements of the transnational capitalist class, but has been in favor of those interests because we're not out of the woods and we're still going to be facing the threat of fascism. And the policies, at least that have been articulated so far coming out of the Biden administration, is going to aggravate the conditions that generate a fascist response. Today on American Indian Airwaves, part one of pandemic profiteering, the post-2020 presidential elections and what the incoming Biden administration means, the global police state, democracy under threat, and the rise of fascism and maintaining systems of oppression. Plus more here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright The lone blue elk in the black of the night You can hear, you can hear The whisper in the valley mm-hmm. And you know when come a honey blows To the bar who drum On today's show, we're going to talk about the global police state with William I. Robinson. As you well know, uh, KPFK cannot operate unless uh, it conducts uh, periodic fund drives. And KPFK is an essential part of the public media landscape. And it's one of the few places where you can hear indigenous voices and perspectives, such as here on American Indian Airwaves. And American Indian Airwaves has been around since 1973 in different shapes and forms and different co-hosts over the generations and bringing you those grassroots perspectives here on American Indian Airwaves and KPFK. And we want to ask listeners to, despite the hardships that a lot of us are going through, is to help keep the station alive, help breathe life into the station so they can grow for future generations. And yes, it is KPFK's fund drive. And yes, you can support financially with making an online pledge at the kpfk.org website, or you can pick up The Global Police State by William Robinson here on American Indian Airwaves. It's a $125 premium. That phone number is 818-985-5735. And we're actually going to play excerpts from a brand new interview we did with Dr. William Robinson this past week. And we're going to play just snippets of it to give you a small taste of what you can read if you pick up the book, The Global Police State by Dr. William Robinson as a $125 premium as a thank you gift for uh, supporting Indigenous voices here on American Indian Airwaves as a way of supporting 
alternative media such as KPFK here on FM 90.7. And the, the global police state talks about global inequity, global capitalism, and how we've reached this historical and contemporary junctural point where there's vast inequity, vast disempowerment, smaller concentration of wealth by a handful or a few thousand people throughout the United States and how millions and millions of people are either in poverty, slipping into poverty, or heading towards poverty and what we need to do to mobilize against these the transnational corporations to mobilize against global capital and help create a uh, sustainable future for all. Marcus? Hey, Larry, you're so right. When we talk about the American Indian Airways, many years of broadcasting, as you said, Larry, this book, The Global Police State, indicates certain things and certain aspects of capitalist accumulation, capitalism, and all those things you hear about. But one of the things that the Global Police State book by... William I. Robinson talks about not only capitalism has become a system of repression, but Robinson argues that the emerging megacities of the world are becoming the battlegrounds where the excluded and the oppressed face off against the global police state. That battleground of excluded and oppressed face is the indigenous peoples, what we have shown you, the listeners, that aspect of the front line of indigenous struggles, whether it be the Mapuches or whether it be over there in the Honduras or Mexico or Canada or United States, we can see that these areas of repression has really signified something. And we give you those reports of the front line struggles of indigenous peoples and their take on it, whether it be the Zapatistas, the Mapuches, or whether it be the people this recently in the pipelines and the man camps. But we see this, that it's really important to give you that, our listeners, that different alternative. Now, Larry, the book Silicon Valley and Surveillance Capitalism, a subsection within the book talks about the Revolution in Military Affairs, the RMA, and that, that this chilling new system of warfare and repression made possible by more advanced digitalization including IA-powered autonomous weaponry, such as unmasked attacks and transportation of vehicles, robotics, soldiers, and the new generation of super drones and flybots and other micro uh, drones, hypersonic weapons, microwave guns that immunize nano weaponry, cyber attack, and I can go on more and more and more, but yet the whole point of Larry, indigenous people we've seen in Sandy Rock and we've seen in many other struggles, that this aspect of to understand what is going on and understand this new militarized accumulation of not only digitalization, but the weaponry that occurred has created a sense of the culture of information technology. And Larry, we need to know this and you need to pick up the book, The Global Police State. Pick up the book. It's $125. That is a, a gift that we give to you for your donation to KPFK, and especially if you support the institutions or indigenous groups, your groups that are in the reservations that we reach out to, the community groups that are in the casinos, you know, that $125, couple of chips, hey, we'll take it. Your donation, and you phone the KPFK, 
number at the same time um, if you want to go in the Internet and we're there, kpfk.org, Larry. Thank you, Marcus. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you're talking about the urban environment, about two-thirds to three-fourths of the Native population lives in the urban environment. And, you know, the Pentagon, you know, refers to urban populations, right, where a majority of most people presently live and continue to live. But the urban environment is thought of the battlescape, the place where, you know, surveillance capitalism takes place, the place where militarization takes place, right? So urban environments, right, are these concentrated areas throughout the country where a lot of Native people live, where a lot of relatives live, right? They are the fence line targeted populations, if you will, for this transnational capitalist uh, system that we live in, uh, where we see some of the greatest and most systemic forms of oppression where people are struggling. And in William's book, The Global Police State, talks about that in really just intimate, detailed, direct, easy ways that makes it easy to understand for the readers. And that's why it's such a powerful read. It's called The Global Police State by Dr. William Robinson. It's a $125 premium that listeners can pick up by calling 818-5735, 818-985-5735, or 818 818- 985-KPFK or visit the kpfk.org website. Even if you don't have $125 to pledge to help support alternative media and marginalized voices, or you, you can contribute by be, becoming a KPFK Sustainer Circle member where you can make monthly donations. What's $5 a month? If you can't afford $125 right now, what's $5 a month? Or what's even $3 a month, right? Your contribution helps fund the station's operations, which is crucial to an ever-declining public media landscape. And it's essentially important to maintain the diversified range of voices, including indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations and the work that we do here on American Indian Airwaves in bringing grassroots Native American voices to the forefront across the public media landscape, across the internet. And that's why it's so important. Support American Indian Airwaves and KPFK. Pick up The Global Police State by Dr. William Robinson. It's a $125 premium, 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, or visit the kpfk.org website and become a KPFK uh, Circle member. Larry, you could also, also we want to mention that um, within the number 818-985-5735, that's 818-985-5735. Without your help, like we talk about here at KPFK, Power by the People, you are the people. And we have bills. We have different things that need to be done. And just like our good friend Corey Dubin talked about, who's no longer with us, talked about put your ear where your wall is at. And that is to say, all this, the, the transnational capitalist class, all that's a fancy word saying that these people interrelated. In our discussion with William 
uh, I Robinson talks about that, Larry, that we're going to play. It talks about, he talks about why this is important. He talks about the merger of national, international capital. He talks about these different things. In order to understand where we need to go, we need to understand where we're at. So please phone this number, 818-985-5735, if you want to support the American Indian Airways. You're so right, Marcus. And, you know, one of the things when we talk about this global capitalism, and particularly here in the United States, is that, you know, global capitalism at its core or or rooted here in the United States is subsidized by indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations, is subsidized by indigenous peoples' traditional homelands. And we've reached a point in this settler colonial history and legacy where global capitalism is at a critical juncture that can no longer be sustained unless more and more people are driven into systemic poverty, unless more and more people are policed, if you will, unless more and more people are surveilled, which is a form of police surveillance, and unless more and more people remain and continue to be forced into deeper forms of oppression, which violates people's basic fundamental human rights. And that's why this book is so important, The Global Police State by Dr. William Robinson. It's a $125 premium. You can pick it up by calling 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPF, or go to the kpfk.org website to pick up the book there or become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member by making monthly pledges to help support us here on American Indian Airwaves and KPFK, support those marginalized voices, support those multiple perspectives that help inform, educate, and empower a larger enlightened consciousness of listeners out there in the public media spectrum, out there on listening to KPFK and out there listening to American Indian Airwaves. And Marcus, we had the pleasure and honor to interview you, myself, and Fabiana Hirsch, who's part of the American Indian Airwaves Collective, of interviewing Dr. William Robinson on the global police state. But we also spoke with him about the implications or what could and what is most likely not going to happen unless things change with the incoming Biden administration. And we want to give our listeners an an introduction to that interview uh, that we did with Dr. William Robinson, who wrote The Global Police State. And Dr. William Robinson is a professor of sociology, global studies, and Latin American studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And he has written several award-winning books, including Global Capitalism and the Crisis of Humanity, and We Will Not Be Silenced, uh, back in 2017. And this is his brand new book called The Global Police State, here on American Indian Airwaves. Let's begin by talking about this election of Biden and the demise, or one could use various words, of Mr. Trump. And the question I have for you is, how does the Trump defeat fit in the context of the global capitalist crisis that you discuss so carefully in your book? Is it a setback for global capitalism? that Trump lost, or how do you see it? 
Right. Yeah, that's a fantastic, uh, fantastic question. It's it's critically important, and um, maybe a little later in the interview, I would love to give my own take on the, you know, the post-election uh, analysis and what we can expect from the incoming Biden administration, both in terms of global capitalism and its crisis, and specifically in terms of the global police state, because we are and we're going to continue to be in an acute crisis of global capitalism and the outcome of that crisis moving forward with Biden is going to be an intensification of global police state. But more, spe more specifically with regard to your question, the transnational capitalist class, first of all, was very pleased with Trump's general policies. There were significant differences and for that matter, the different elements of the transnational capitalist class and political elite were very divided with regard to uh, Trump. But nevertheless, the, Trump's economic program was extremely welcomed. In fact, it was promoted by the transnational capitalist class, including massive deregulation, de deregulation and acceleration of privatizations. Of course, the total re reform of the tax laws so that both the rich and corporations are not paying, uh, paying much less taxes. All of this was part of the program. It's always been part of the agenda of the transnational capitalist class. And they got what they want from Trump. And I, I, as I will speak later, they are expecting to get what they want from Biden. And unless we have a massive revolt from below, they will get it from Biden. But let's analyze in a little more detail what's happened here with regard to the transnational capitalist class and the pandemic and the and the both the well, both during Trump and now with the exit of Trump. And we know that, in fact, the the um, capitalist class has made massive, massive profits through the pandemic itself. The pandemic is not, in many ways, the pandemic is not against the interests of, the, of major elements of the transnational capitalist class, but has been in favor of those interests. And I'm sure that many of the listeners have heard this data that U.S. in the United States, the U.S. billionaires increased their wealth by a trillion dollars just from March, when the pandemic really hit, until the end of October. A trillion dollars, of course, at a time when there's tens of millions of unemployed people sinking into massive immiseration and impoverishment. The latest data on hunger and food insecurity is that 55 uh, mil uh, uh, million people are moving into hunger. But this was also worldwide. The pandemic was a massive profit bonanza for worldwide, the 1%. The other piece of data here that many might not be familiar with is that worldwide, billionaires' wealth rose to 10.2 trillion dollars. That's nearly a 30% increase. And that is just from March to July. That's the data I have. March to July, a 30% increase. They increased their wealth worldwide, the billionaire class, to 10 trillion dollars, which at this point is about 15% of the entire GNP, the entire world economy. But uh, going back to your question, some elements of the transnational capitalist class have seen their profits diminished during the pandemic. For instance, uh, while tech profit, while the disease industry, I don't call it the health industry, the disease industry, hospitals, et cetera, all of them massively increased their wealth. The airlines, the cruise industry, commercial shopping centers, they all had serious problems. So both of these sectors want the economy back open. And I know that, uh, Fabiana, you and I were talking previously prior to the interview about, you know, about the far right wing movement to reopen the economy without masks and, and so forth. But I think we want to see that capital, the capitalist class, wanted a reopening and use these far right shock troops, including the Trump base, use it 
as a pressure me- mechanism to push for a reopening of the economy. And we know that some of these mobilizations to reopen the economy were funded and organized by conservative corporate foundations. So what Trump did, what Trump did here in, to, de- to defend the interests of the transnational capitalist class was, for instance, forced essential workers back to work without safety conditions. So the meat packers were called essential workers and were forced to go back and many of them got COVID and many, many of them died. Agricultural workers, Trump declared the fossil fuel industry that is an essential sector. So all the fossil fuel workers had to go back to work and of course under conditions which were extremely dangerous with regard to the virus. So you know the point here is that the transnational capitalist class has benefited and been able to utilize the Trump administration for uh, its, its own interests. And to link this to the election and to, to, to Biden coming to power, it's very revealing that although the TCC, that's my abbreviation for transnational capitalist class, although they loved a lot of Trump's policies, they also are lo- loving and, and uh, extremely happy that Biden is coming in now. And let's remember, this is very fascinating that Trump didn't want to concede. He still hasn't officially really conceded. But about 10 days ago, eight to 10 days ago, 137 of the leading CEOs of the biggest corporations in the United States collectively met with Trump and, and, and called on him to accept his defeat because they don't want the instability of an unstable uh, transition. It will undermine the, their interests. So, um, you know, I barely scratched the surface of what you're, what you're asking for, but how we, you know, the question you're asking, but how we see the relationship of capital and the ruling groups to both Trump and Biden in the context of the uh, pandemic. William, in uh, listening to your response, I was curious, could one argue that this uh, transnational capitalist class, or at least uh, certain actors, if you will, of this transnational capitalist class would actually benefit from a protracted extension of the shutdowns that we're experiencing throughout the United States, in large part because it will force more the mom and pop or small businesses to actually fold and then leaving these larger national or international corporations uh, intact because they have that kind of financial capital, if you will, to weather the storm. Absolutely. That is an extremely important point. We have to remember that capitalist crises uh, and capitalism, global capitalism is now in a deep crisis, but crises are opportunities for the ruling groups and for the big and the, the most biggest elements of the capitalist class. And just as you pointed out, every time there's a crisis, there's a further concentration of capital in the hands of less and less and bigger conglomerates. So millions worldwide, actually, the figure is 400 million small and medium-sized enterprises have been threatened and many gone out of business. This is worldwide uh, during the pandemic. So those are gobbled up and more market, more more of the share of the markets and more of economic control is then concentrated in the giant global corporations that survive, some of which even thrive during the pandemic. But you know, there's a very important sub-analysis here of the specific sectors of the capitalist class that have uh, flourished. But I want to say also that I've started now a new book, which is Global Capitalism Post-COVID, and all of these transformations brought about during and now uh, as, we, as we hopefully leave the pandemic. And the pandemic is leaving in its, in its wake more inequality and deprivation among the world's people, including the United States, more authoritarianism, more political conflict, much more heightened, concentrated control 
by the transnational capitalist class, and of course a heightening of global police states. But there are three sectors of the capitalist class worldwide which are emerging from the pandemic more powerful than ever. One is the tech sector, very broadly conceived, including big pharma and the and biotechnology industry. Secondly is the military-industrial complex, and I hope we'll get into that uh, as we move through the, the interview. And the third is the financial sector. So this is sort of a new dominant block of capital, which is much more powerful, much, much more powerful. And one of the things going on with the pandemic is many of us switched to having to work at home. And even those, and of course the essential workers have to go dangerously to, 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 to jobs. But millions, tens of millions had to switch to working at home. And everyone has had through the pandemic a heightened dependence on all of this new tech forms of capital, including home delivery, including Zoom, and homeschooling and telemedicine and, and all of this. So through the pandemic, the global tech capital is moving to the very core of the global economy, together with the military industrial uh, complex and together with the financial sector. So that's what we're going to see as we move out of this, we move out of this pandemic that all of this advanced technology in the hands of the transnational capitalist class, its power will be incredibly heightened, and they're going to use that power to enhance the global police state. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. I'm one of your hosts, Larry Smith. And I'm Marcus Lopez. And you're listening to an interview that Marcus, myself, and Fabiana Hirsch did with uh, Dr. William Robinson. He's the author of the brand new book, The Global Police State. Dr. William Robinson is professor of sociology, global studies, and Latin American studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's authored several award-winning books, including Global Capitalism and the Crisis of Humanity, and We Will Not Be Silenced. And he was speaking on... The global police state and the possible implications of an incoming Biden administration and whether or not right, the global police state will continue throughout his administration or what people can do to help stop the global police state. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. And yes, we are in fun drive mode here on KPFK. Please support KPFK Please support alternative media. Please support marginalized and alternative voices such as indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations here on American Indian Airwaves. Become a supporter. Pick up the book, The Global Police State. It's a $125 premium. You can call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, or visit the kpfk.org website. You can pick up the book there. Or you can become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member by making monthly pledges at $5, at $10 a month, whatever you can afford. Support KPFK, support alternative media. You can't hear this kind of information elsewhere in the corporate highly concentrated mass media industry or the computer and information industries. It's so important to hear different perspectives, to challenge your preconceived notions or ideas about the world that we live in. It's important to be exposed to, you know, different kinds of information that help raise the level of critical consciousness for all of us so we can move in a direction to create culturally sustainable futures for us all. Marcus? Yeah, Larry. 
thank you for that. And we want to just reach out to our listeners, reach out to them. And we talked about earlier, Larry, on our discussion about the ever-declining media landscape. Well, I want to just put another twist on that. The ever-declining cultural landscape. Mm. And that is, to, that is to say, we look at this phenomena of communications as a sense of what we hear, what we see within the media today. KPFK is not like any other radio station. KPFK is not like a station that uh, mimics the transnational capitalist. It just, it just doesn't do that. And you can turn on to any minute, with any moment within the station and get an alternative view. Now, be it that all they're not the same, but yet when the book, for example, The Global Police State, and you said earlier, Larry, he talks about capitalist accumulation, kind of redefines it again for people who are not uh, uh, used to that term. But when you said, and you were polite, that we were subsidizing you know, the capitalists and its emergence of a 13 colonies to its just mega approach to a world power during the First World War and then finally breaking out of the Second World War, we can see that the uh, capitalist accumulation and in the known, there's never been that much accumulation and that much about the development of the economy and the society, given the fact that first peoples, indigenous peoples, Indian peoples, however you phrase it, created the resources and the labor in order to create the accumulation of capital to Europe and back to the 13 colonies, and then in turn, the genocide, the Holocaust, the atrocities, the murder, the rape, the brutalization, as in California, Benjamin Medley talks about the Californian killing machine, the development of this killing machine, the development of this police state that they need, the military, and the militarization in order to protect capital, in order to protect capitalism. There's other native shows, Larry, that talk about, well, they have different native people's views about the culture and whatnot, but they don't go at the root of the matter. The root of the matter is that it's a system that oppresses, alienates, exploits, oppresses a nation, a first nation. And we have to get to that. And when we get to that, then we can create the strategy and the tactics in order to say, how do we go from here? What's the kind of discussion we need to go from there? And this notion of a global police state creates an ingenious methods of how we're controlled, including mass incarceration. Larry, talk about mass incarceration. Native people, unproportionately, are in jail. Police violence, we can say that police violence, just like the Black Lives Matter, talks about the violence of, of men, men, Indian men and women, and also the U.S.-led wars. Who fights these wars? The proportionality, as far as over the proportionality of Native people go into these wars, both men and women, and fight these wars, and that gives you a notion of the level of the influence of this mass capitalist class, the national class, the capitalist class, and how capitalism creates the situation of this atrocities. Now, at the same time, with the same breath, Larry, we, this book talks about the solutions. He talks about eco-socialism. I ask him on the interview, what does that mean? 
what's the ramifications of that? And in Indian country, as long and as well as other portions of the United States population, socialism is on the agenda. And there might not be there might not be the everybody understanding it or aspects of it, but within that, it gives you a good foundation, Larry, about this book, Global Police State, about where is this information and where this analysis goes to. It goes someplace and then leads there. And that this discussion will come to fruition, especially when we talk about the Biden years and what the Biden does or uh, uh, President-elect Biden does or does not do. And so we can see this as a blueprint of our understanding and discussions and dialogue with Native communities need to have, as well as non-Native communities within the vast amount of what they call, Larry, this American working class that we have here in the United States, if not globally. You're so right, Marcus. We want to remind listeners that they can pick up the book, The Global Police State by Dr. William Robinson by dialing 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, or you can visit the kpfk.org website and also become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member by pledging X number of dollars per month. Help support alternative media, help support KPFK, help support marginalized voices here on American Indian Airwaves. And Marcus, we want to take our listeners back to the interview that we just did this past week with Dr. William Robinson. He's talking about the global police state as well as what could and what might happen with the incoming Biden administration and whether or not the global police state will only intensify or what we can do to help stop the global police state. And now, Dr. William Robinson, Professor of Sociology, Global Studies, and Latin American Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, on the global police state. Professor Robinson, you discussed the nature of going back to the transnational capitalist class and its effect globally. Well, one can't ignore, in addition to that, you touched on it, and I think Larry question touched on it, is the the irony of the nation state and this industrial base and the transnational class can be in contradiction with one another. How do you see that playing out, especially on your global economy? It misses the notion of the political forces inside the United States as well as China, Russia, European Union, and at, at, at matters of maybe, maybe Japan, how does that express itself? Because there is a contradiction. Please elaborate. Well, I think the biggest contradiction, well, there are different, different uh, fractions within capital. So I was mentioning that particularly the military industrial capital, uh, the tech sector, of course, financial are the biggest uh, winners in this. So there's different, there's different um, co- competition and interest among different capitalist groups. And some of that was seen during the pandemic. And these, these tensions within the, the global, the worldwide within capitalist classes, yes, is going to, is going to uh, intensify. But there's something else going going on here, which is very important. And, and this, well, also, let me say, there are two things in which the transnational capitalist class is always going to be unified. 
And first of those is that they want to push for an open global economy and access to the world's resources and access to the world's labor force in order to exploit it. And they want to suppress any state power that might get in the way of the interests of global capitalism as a whole. So with all their divisions, that's key point of their unity. And the second is that they're unified in repressing any global revolt, in extending, in exercising and in extending a global police state to contain the actual and the potential rebellion of surplus humanity, of the immiserated worldwide population, and of the glo global working class. So in those two elements, the transnational capitalist class is unified, and they're unified across borders. But I add one other point here with regard to, to what you're asking, and that is that I had mentioned that we are in a deep crisis of global capitalism, and the pandemic did not cause the crisis. It only aggravated it. The, the system was already in deep crisis. And two of the dimensions of those crises, one is structural, it's chronic stagnation in the global economy. Now the global economy is, in, is, you know, is moving into a full-scale uh, depression. But the other element of that acute global crisis has been one of state legitimacy and capitalist hegemony. People are rebelling uh, anywhere all around the world. And so instability is a threat to capitalists uh, where, wherever you go. And there have been two strategies with regard to states with, in regard to um, mass rebellion from below and this incredible inequality. And from states and from uh, capitalist groups, and one is to intensify the repression of the global police state, basically the coercive, coercive response to this acute crisis of inequality and legitimacy. And the other is to bring about mild reform of the system in order to ameliorate the worst of mass suffering and and therefore ameliorate some of this crisis of legitimacy and capitalist hegemony. And which of those two will become most salient? whether it's the coercive repressive response or a reform project will really depend on the rebellion from below, on mass pressure on capitalist states everywhere as we emerge from the pandemic. But as of now, the response is to intensify and heighten global police states. Professor Robinson, why should people care about this discussion? Well, because this, I mean, the simple answer is in the interest of the vast majority of people, not just listening to this program, but all around the world to care about these issues, because we have, I've mentioned this acute crisis of global capitalism. It's both one of stagnation, you know, structural, and it's one of the legitimacy of the system itself. But the, the biggest dimension of that crisis, what's looming here is a massive social crisis for humanity. More and more, more and more uh, people in the world cannot simply cannot survive. There's no way of surviving in the global capitalist system. We all are familiar with the data at this point that 1% of humanity controls over 50% of the world's wealth. Um, but And then 20% of humanity, that portion that might be able to survive, and that's a figure going down, and even their survival is difficult. That 20% of humanity controls 95% of the world's wealth. So here, 80% of humanity has just 5% of the world's wealth amongst itself. Uh, global climate change is expected to generate 700 million refugees over this coming uh, years and, and the coming decades. And I just saw a brand new report that there are now 63 walls being built by governments all around the world along borders to keep out the oppressed and the refugees and immigrants and the marginalized or lock them in. 63 giant walls being built all around the world and that's accelerating. So the oppressed are walled in and the privileged are walled out and the oppressed are 
locked in where global police state defends their interests of the privilege and, 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 and rains down on those walls uh, out. But I want to go back to this. There's, there's um, the United Nations has reported that 200, 300, up to 500 million people are now facing hunger worldwide, something intensified by the uh, pandemic. We have, we have 2 billion people that don't have employment. That's surplus humanity. 2 billion people out of 7 billion uh, on the planet are literally locked out and, and long-term structurally unemployed and marginalized. They have to scratch out a living in the informal sector or in any way they can, or they die. And then we have 1.5 billion workers. That's people that do have work, whether it's an Amazon warehouse, whether it's a frontline nurse, whether it's a meatpacking plant, whether it's whatever it is anywhere in the world, working in sweatshops, et cetera. Those one, that 1.5 billion of those workers are working under extremely precarious conditions. No benefits, no guarantee that they'll be employed in the future, part-time contract labor, and under uh, uh, poverty wages. Imagine fast food workers in the United States, for instance. So the vast majority of humanity has a material interest in these issues in understanding what's going on with global capitalism, in what's going on with global police states that are, they are facing in order to devise some collective survival strategies and collective strategies of resistance to this juggernaut of global capitalism and those small sectors of humanity led by the capitalist class and the capitalist states that are benefiting and that are have their boots on all of our necks. So this is a matter why we should care about this is because this is a matter of survival for the vast majority of humanity. And the more we have an analytical and even a theoretical understanding of the enemy that we are up against, the better we can devise our resistance strategies and the better we can try and transform this system, even if we don't overthrow it, transform it through massive reforms to improve the lot of the majority of humanity. And it's, it's even more important in the midst of this pandemic and as we emerge from it to understand the nature of what's going on, the nature of this beast. Dr. Robinson, circling back a little bit to the post-election analysis, which certainly relates to what you were just explaining about the importance of what is taking place internationally, how do we see the changes as we transition to Biden? And what do you expect that to bring? Because a number of people feel as though after the horrible repressive years of Trump, Having Biden is going to be, I wouldn't go so far as to say post-racial, but certainly more open in terms of how the Biden administration may look at some of these issues, especially given who his vice president is. Well, I'm not, I am not so optimistic, Uh, although if there's intensified struggle from below in an organized way in a mass rebellion, this incoming administration may be pushed in a different direction. But let me explain why at least things being what they are right now, uh, November 27, you're interviewing me, why I'm not so optimistic. But if I may, I'd like to start with the analysis of the elections because we're not out of the woods and we're still going to be facing the threat of fascism. And the policies at least that have been articulated so far coming out of the Biden administration, is going to aggravate the conditions that generate a fascist response. So if you'd allow me to first make a brief analysis of the elections and then culminate with this point of what we should expect. We, we know, and I know that your listeners have heard this from other people, but remember, these elections were extremely close, and they were not, for me, a vote for Biden, but a vote against against Trump. 
and we know that we now have significant statistics that 70 they were historic elections largest elections in u.s history and i think that massive participation in the elections this massive outpouring is because masses of people are hungry for change we know that 79 million people voted for Biden, but also 74 million voted for Trump. And they're still going to be around. And we need to analyze why they voted for Trump. And the biggest winner, and no one is speaking about this, not even not the media, no one, is 80 million people abstained. They felt there was no, no purpose in even participating in these elections. And we did not see a blue wave at all. We saw a slight change in the voting, just enough to tip Biden into victory. And we also know that racially oppressed communities massively increased their voting and tipped it over the top for Biden to win. And Trump got 28 percent of the vote from uh, people of color uh, and Biden got 72 percent of that vote. The, the white electorate voted in the same percentage for Trump. It didn't go up and it didn't go down. 50% of whites, 57% of whites voted for Trump. But here's the thing that has been less talked about in the media, and it is class. And why this is so, so crucially important is because it determines moving forward, are we going to have a resurgence and deeper fascism? And why is it that so many working people voted for Trump? So the preliminary data that we have on class, and allow me, I know this is a very long-winded answer, but I think this analysis is critically important. We know that wealthy people actually increased, the number of wealthy people that voted for Trump increased. But here's the thing, among people that are working class, less than 100,000 in income a year for a family, and especially less than 50,000, they did vote in the small majority for Biden. But 43% of poor people, 50K and under for a family, voted for Trump. So what does this mean? The reason I'm saying this is because we're not out of the woods. The threat of fascism is not only still there, but Biden's policies, as he so far articulated, articulated them, will only fuel the fans of fascist mobilization. And let me explain why I am saying that. And you're listening to a special interview here on American Indian Airwaves with Dr. William Robinson. This is part one of a two-part interview on the global police state. And now back to the interview. Tens of millions of working class people, the majority of them white, voted for Trump. And so what's going on with this base? Apart from racism, there's no way we're going to justify uh, racism. And here I'm not talking about the far right wing militias that are openly racist, the clans, the Proud Boys, all of them. I'm talking about he got 74 million votes. Among them, tens of millions of workers, the majority white. Well, the working class in the United States, including the, the white members of the working class that previously were comfortable, had stable employment in the 20th century, had privileged, had comfortable lives, had higher incomes, had pensions, et cetera, et cetera. These masses of white, poor white workers are moving downward. They've been totally destabilized by capitalist globalization, by neoliberalism. They ex they, they're experiencing under and unemployment. They're experiencing total economic and social insecurity. And how do they respond to this downward mobilism, this assault by neoliberalism and capitalist globalization going on for 40 to 50 years now? Well, they've been mobilized by Trump with a false promise, of course. In part, they've been mobilized by co uh, coded and open racist language to say, no, the problem are um, uh, blacks, uh, uh, immigrants, and, and so forth. But in part, they've been mobilized, and the Democrats did not mobilize them. 
They've been mobilized because Trump says to them, I'm, I'm going to improve the economy. I'm going to give you jobs. I'm not going to cut any jobs. They're responding to a real, Trump's message responds. It's a false promise, but it responds to the real suffering of tens of millions of white workers who are also mobilized by the racism of Trump. And the Democrats brought us to the doorstep of Trump. They have not offered anything. On the contrary, the Democrat policy during all the Obama years, during all the Clinton years, and Biden is all part of that. The Democratic policies have been neoliberalism, has been capitalist globalization, has been meet the needs of the transnational capitalist class of Wall Street of the military industrial complex, wars abroad and austerity at home. And all of that has accelerated this destabilization of the working class in general and those white workers, uh, too. And, if, and so it is that destabilized, immiserated condition, the real suffering of these white workers that the fascist base and the race, the fascist um, mobilization and the racist mobilization recruit them on the basis of that suffering. So if the Democrats and Biden does not offer something real, some real change, that mass base is still going to be organized by fascism. And so I want to, you know, conclude. I know this is a, a long response, but let's remember what Biden has so far. This is why I'm not so hopeful unless there's mass resistance that can push the incoming government in a different direction. Biden already said he met with bankers in New York shortly after the convention when he became the nominee. And he said, don't worry, nothing will change. I'm still going to meet your interests. He also has said that he's going to veto Medicare for all if it even is passed and it comes to his to his his desk. He said that he's against the Green New Deal. Most importantly, he's always for his entire career been a he's he's guilty of war crimes. He supported U.S. wars of imperialist intervention all around the world. He enthusiastically embraced the invasion of, uh, of Iraq and every other intervention. He's already promised that he's going to increase the Pentagon budget. If you look at the Pentagon budget combined with the Homeland Security and the intelligence agencies, their official budgets, not even secret spending, that is a trillion dollars a year, and he is going to increase it. He's already declared for the last 25, 30 years, he's always said, we need to cut Social Security and Medicare while increasing the budget for the Pentagon. He hasn't said anything different at this point. He's really, he's always been extremely close to the military industrial complex, tech capital, tech capital, Wall Street, credit card industry, big farmer. He's a staunch male liberal. And moreover, what has he done since the election? He, he won the election because of a largely, I mean, he was tipped over largely by, by especially black voters uh, who massively voted in his favor, 87% against, 88% against 12%. Uh, but he had this also this left wing of the Democratic Party, Bernie, AOC, etc., uh, Warren, and he has putting it has put together a center right coalition, marginalizing those from the left. I mean, we can analyze his his uh, cabinet. So if things continue as usual, this is just a continuation of Obama and of Clinton. The crisis is going to get much worse inequality is going to get much worse. There will be just as many or more wars around the world. And the potential basis for fascists and racists to recruit for a fascist base, fascist racist base, is going to intensify. So all of this really hinges, I'll just conclude with this, it really hinges on how us mobilizing massively from below in our social movements uh, and very broad coalitions to force this incoming government more in a reformist or a leftist direction unless 
that happens, we're still in big trouble. We're not out of this. And I just, I know I, know I said I would conclude, but one other point. Remember that it, since reconstruction from the ninth, late 1860s into the 1870s, the biggest reform project we've ever had in the United States is the 1930s New Deal and its aftermath. And that only came about because just like now, we were in the United States and the world was in a big crisis, the Great Depression, and it was mass radical mobilization, socialists, communists, um, uh, the anti-racist and union struggles taking place then that forced the New Deal. So if the only thing that's going to save us now is this mass resistance from below. So a very long-winded answer, but I'm not so... You know, I mean, it's good that we see all of this diverse candidate in terms of the faces of people now in power look more like the faces of people in the United States, a much more balanced. That's wonderful, but that is a simply a symbolic victory. It doesn't mean anything about the actual content of policy. That remains to be seen. And Biden's cabinet doesn't give us much room for hope uh, currently, at least who's he's named so far to that cabinet. Yes, Professor, you talked about the, in your book, the global police state. You talked about this difference between the 30s fascism national capital and the 21st fascism transnational capital. And then you talked about the preemptive strike of fascists around the world, even with the United States. What, in, in, in addition to that, you, within the book you said, and I, and I read, in Europe, the far right and the neo-fascist movements were following a very, a very similar path to Trump in terms of recruiting formerly privileged among the working classes who are yes. suffering under the crisis of scapegoating, scapegoating Muslim immigrants and other vulnerable sectors, promising to stabilize the situation for these precarious sectors. Now, within that, those sectors, this preemptive strike, what is that in relationship to the Indian population within the United States? Absolutely. Well, let's talk about that now head on, the indigenous population in the United States, and link that also to the issue of, you know, of, of resistance, which is the only thing that's going to save us now. But um, taking that story back, to put it in context, as you were just pointing out, that, that Nazism in Germany had a mass base. Germany was in well, the whole world was in great the Great Depression, but Germany was suffering more than any other of the rich countries, unbelievably. And the Nazis reached out to a portion of the German workers and, and promised them something, uh, and that's why they got mass support. Now, the other portion of the working and the major and the people in, in Nazi in, in because fascism only has the in group that fascists try to mobilize and say we're going to meet your needs we're going to respond to your suffering and they do so of course through racist and fascist ideology but the other mass of the population is excluded in fascism and targeted for genocide as far targeted for marginalization for repression of course that was the Jews as well as the Roma uh, it was called back then the gypsies um, uh, homosexual socialists and communists in in Germany and they were subject to, to genocide. So the same thing now in the United States with the threat, threat of fascism. Fascism has to appeal to a mass base, and it has to appeal on the basis of real suffering from that mass base. So previously I was saying, what's that mass base? Disproportionately white workers who are now incredibly suffering, who are going to be whipped up by racism. But what is the mass, the scapegoats, and that significant portion of the population outside of the fascist project? And that is the mass of in, that is among them are the indigenous and the mass and the immigrants and the mass of, of, of workers that are going to be scapegoated and, and, and not 
even intended to be mobilized by, by fascism. And in that regard, and you know, we've, there's always the insight that the most oppressed are not always, depending on the political and ideological and cultural circumstances, but the most oppressed and marginalized are the most threat to the system and the most militant in resistance. So the indigenous, despite being a tiny portion of the population in the United States, has always been in, totally in the forefront of resistance. In the height of the Standing Rock, you know, the Standing Rock resistance against the, the, the pipeline, that was worldwide solidarity was coming in. That struggle was for, the, for several weeks and months, the leading edge of popular resistance struggle uh, from below. And now there's the struggle against the Enbridge uh, pipe. But I want to point out the lesson here is that Obama and all of his policies were anti-indigenous, anti-poor people, anti-worker, and Obama sanctioned and refused to cancel the Standing Rock pipe, pipeline until there was months of militant resistance. And then at the last minute, he, he, he canceled it because he caved in to the pressure. So if you're asking about indigenous are now mounting a massive, and, and our allies are, are mounting a massive resistance to this Enbridge pipeline in in um, Minnesota. And so I think we're going to see the same thing. In the first instance, I don't think Biden, anyone in the U.S. government is going to cancel that because they're tied to all of the industries that are benefiting from that pipeline. But once again, we are already seeing that this is the very first big battle now mounting up is the battle against Enbridge. So once again, the indigenous are leading the charge here. The very first battle that Biden is going to have to deal with might be this one in, in, uh, in Minnesota. The moment of silence is over. And that was part one of a two-part interview with Dr. William Robinson on his book, The Global Police State. He's professor of sociology, global studies, and Latin American studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. We want to remind listeners to support KPFK by picking up the premium item, The Global Police State, for $125 by calling 818-985-KPFK, 818-985-5735, or visit the kpfk.org website and become a KPFK Sustainers Circle member by making monthly donations. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Dr. William Robinson. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Starr. Koopa Aina and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time.
us against our fears Try not to become what we've endured Wearing our souls on the thread The moment of silence is over